you know, those people that are 50 plus years old have seen two peaks really in the last uh, 50 years. And one of them was the most substantial one, obviously in the eighties. Um, and, and it was very interesting that it's, it's not just a problem in one state or the other, but across the range with a whole bunch of different things affecting them. Rockcast is powered by Onyx Hunt, and for good reason. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app in the industry. Stay tuned for a Rockcast promo code. Okay, Rockslide, welcome back to the Rockcast. I've got one of my previous guests on, Toby Bordreau, the Idaho State Deer and Elk Coordinator. Uh, we did a podcast earlier this spring. It was looking at the downloads. It was very well received. Uh, we appreciate everybody following these podcasts with these biologists and uh, big game coordinators and the various wildlife professionals that we bring on. I think it all makes us better hunters and better able to support the North American wildlife model, the most successful wildlife model in the world, let me remind you. Uh, Toby is just coming back from the Nevada Mule Deer Enhancement Summit. Maybe you've never heard of it. I hadn't either till about a week ago. Uh, but Nevada is embarking on uh, connecting with citizens committees around the state to have a more thorough download uh, from mule deer biology, habitat, predation, and more uh, on one of our favorite species in Nevada, that is mule deer. So basically connecting with, with these different groups on what are they seeing in the field, uh, what does the research say, and, and bringing it all together and having a big old think party. Uh, the Winnemucca Summit attracted over 100 uh, people. And uh, the keynote speaker was none other than one of our favorite people, Randy Newberg. So it sounds like a great event. And Toby, thanks for coming on to the Rockcast. Uh, let's talk all about this. And what did you learn and what's going on down there? Absolutely, Robbie. Thank you for uh, letting me uh, come on and join you. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a great event. Uh, it started on a Thursday evening, um, went all day Friday, and then they had a field tour on Saturday. You know, I think... You know, it, it was really nice because the, the director of uh, Nevada Department of Wildlife, Alan Janay, kind of kicked the meeting off, you know, and really kind of reiterated that they are doubling down on mule deer and that it's an important thing to them to manage mule deer in, in Nevada. And they realize how important it is to mule deer hunters. Uh, which I think was really important. Um, obviously, mule deer biology is uh, complex. Um, everybody wishes that they they knew the the important parts of, or or they they had the silver bullet, but we don't. Uh, not as of yet. Um, so the 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 mule deer biology session started off with Jim Heffelfinger, who is the works for Arizona Game and Fish. And is actually the chairman of the uh, mule deer working group for the Western states. Um, he talked about issues and management challenges throughout the West. Um, it was pretty interesting that you know the graphs that he showed from Arizona 
almost completely mimic the same graphs that I saw in publications from Nevada and from Idaho. So, you know, those people that are 50 plus years old have seen two peaks really in the last uh, 50 years. And one of them was the most substantial one, obviously in the eighties. Um, and, and it was very interesting that it's, it's not just a problem in one state or the other, but across the range with a whole bunch of different things affecting him. And Toby, then, uh, the, the previous peak being what the sixties. Yeah. The, yeah, the, the, it was really the sixties, uh, and yeah, early seventies. Okay. But, um, and a lot of it obviously is related to weather events, which we all know that, you know, mule deer are pretty sensitive to those things. And, uh, so then I, I got up after Jim and talked a lot about this, some of the same things, but really from an Idaho specific perspective. And then where I took it next was this is how Idaho manages mule deer and, um, kind of gave the, the comparisons and the contrast between the two states, which are very, very different. You know, there was about 10,500 mule deer tags last year in Nevada. And I think counting general and controlled hunt tags last year in Idaho, we had about 79,000. So, so basically eight times the amount. Eight times the number of people got to hunt. And I, you know, and one of the points that I talked about, obviously, was antlerless hunting. And, you know, you and I talked a lot about that um, for your uh, for your new book. And uh, and yeah, it, I nobody threw any tomatoes, but I'm sure that they were uh, <laughs> not not thinking that, uh, you know, my message was what they wanted to hear necessarily. But it, it's true. And, you know, when mule deer are approaching you know, the capacity of the habitat that, you know, reducing the population not only makes healthier deer, more productive deer populations, and honestly, you get bigger bucks in the end. Yes, you do. So yep. That was, uh, that was very, uh, <clears throat> and then talked about predation and, you know, uh, you know, the Idaho's um, history with studying predation and the work that Mark Hurley did in the late nineties and early two thousands and which basically showed that, you know, you can, you can get after it pretty darn hard and on coyote and lions. And it's hard uh, sometimes to see population level effects um, as much as people would like to think that, you know, predation was the silver bullet. It is, um, it's not that case everywhere. However, there were other speakers that talked about predation and where they've measured positive, positive effects, which I have no doubt happened. Um, mm -hmm. the, the, the next thing was uh, the next uh, talk on the predation thing there. What, what I, what I've learned and just through the reading and everything over the years is that, that, that there's no doubt it can help, especially if you have, you know, uh, if the predators are, are holding the population down, I, heard that called a predator pit, I believe, or something like that. And there's no doubt that you can have an effect, but it seems like sustaining that effect is where the the law of diminishing returns takes over is it's, it has to be a sustained effort long-term 
as in yearly, because we have this problem of reproduction of, you know, new baby coyotes, new baby lions, you know, all that other stuff. Um, uh, so you've got, you got to keep your thumb on them pretty hard. That That's kind of what I take away on predator management. Uh, I, I totally agree. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a big undertaking. And, and yeah, like I said, some states have seen some positive effects from different kinds of treatments in different places during different times. And, um, but I was just sort of, uh, talking about what Idaho's experience with our research was. And, and then uh, Chuck Anderson, who is the research supervisor for Colorado Parks and Wildlife, got up and talked about their large-scale habitat treatments and how they evaluated it for mule deer uh, in Colorado, which was very interesting and showed that, you know, different techniques of manipulating the habitat led to different sorts of have different sorts of plant community re regeneration and and how mule deer use those differently um that was that was really really interesting stuff and how did they manipulate the habitat so they used uh roller choppers which is a giant machine with a giant uh drum with blades on it that they pull behind a cat and it basically just chops and drives and opens up the soil um they did a um a masticator which basically just goes up to a tree and just um turns it into wood chips mm -hmm. and they also did chaining where they went in and just drug a ship chain between two very large caterpillars and basically just kind of broke down the habitat so those were the three treatments that I can remember um that they used and it was the chaining chaining was um you know kind of the original one I remember reading about that like way back in the 80s you know they put chain two two cats together caterpillars and you know d9 cats and run them through a juniper forest and uh you you could open up a lot of habitat in a hurry and not have to worry about uh keeping control of a controlled burn and all that but I haven't heard about it in years yeah and it uh and this was this was work actually that went on in colorado at the same time we were doing the predation study so it was sort of we were doing them at simultaneous uh you know times so we could look at you know sort of null and void you know the other things the weather the you know some some of the things that we experience in colorado and idaho on a regular basis and not all entirely similar, but at least trying to keep the variables down as much as they could. And but it, it was very interesting in how some of those treatments came back into undesirable plants, which then after time were outcompeted by the desirable ones, and how some plants, uh, you know, like when they were chained, they all all the changes went over them. It didn't kill them, break them, or anything, and they just pop back up. So yeah, they they learned a lot during that on what is the most uh, you know efficient and effective treatment. And obviously, you know, uh, there's the cost of mobilization and the cost of getting things done. And you know, there are like a roller chopper is probably the cheapest to mobilize or the most expensive to mobilize, but has good, good effects and can treat a large area. Whereas the small little masticator, um, you know, is very cheap to mobilize, but yet it takes a long time for it to go around a juniper stand and 
chew up all the junipers too. So right, one, one tree at a time. Yeah. Um. You said something about um with the undesirables uh, popping up, um, and then later on being choked out. I've you know I'm, I wouldn't call myself a farmer, but I have taken care of thirty to forty acres of hay for the last fifteen years, growing it for horses and selling it as a side income. And um, I've noticed that too that uh, if you if you cut dikes in a field to improve irrigation, the um, first thing to pop up on those dikes is Russian thistle. I mean, it just the, the soil disturbance is like an on switch for that. Um, but I've noticed that once the hay crop comes in and and we grow grass too, that then it struggles. It has a hard time because now it's competing with with everything else around it, and it, it it's a cycle I've I, I've seen. Um, multiple times, and and I didn't really think about it with disturbing mule deer country. Um, so, did they? Did they? Was the verdict that just give it time, and then the desirables will outcompete the, I guess the weeds. Was was that yeah, the takeaway? I think I think that was the message. Obviously, they did sort of a risk analysis on how close is the closest cheatgrass to this treatment. You know, is it going to be, is there going to be a situation where by disturbing the soil to a great, great degree, are we predisposing that treatment to actually be coming back and cheat grass? And uh, so, so yeah, they, they did some of that analysis and tried not to put it in places that they could pretty much guarantee would come back to cheat. But some of them actually, some of the treatments did actually go into cheat grass and then the bunch grasses and the other natives actually took over over about an eight year period. Um, and man, that's was, great uh, to hear. I didn't even know that we, we could outcompete cheat grass. I thought that took like a goat, a herd of goats, you know, <laughs> it was the only hope, you know, and you, you can only put so many goats on the landscape. Yeah. And you know, we are, or technology is, um, and, and science is trying everything they can to reduce the amount of cheatgrass on the landscape and they've they're coming out with new chemicals in fact the the field tour was specifically about where they've applied chemicals to to suppress cheatgrass from growing and keeping cheatgrass seeds dormant and how they could actually bring a stand back to a, a nice mix of 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 beneficial species not always native but beneficial um, to mule deer and grouse and everything else that lives on the landscape. So, yeah, no, it was, it was very, very insightful work that they've done. Yeah. And that's, that, that's, you know, why I'm always excited about you guys getting together and talking about stuff like this. And, you know, it's like, you know, you, you got to get the discussion out there. You got to talk about the research. You got to see what's working, what's not. And then we can move forward with something because cheatgrass to me, that's kind of the elephant in the room and and and, and to a greater extent, noxious weeds. Uh, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, doe harvest, hard winters, um, you know, hunter numbers, you know, all this other stuff. But man, just the, some of the stuff I've read on noxious weeds and especially cheatgrass uh, just west of west of where you had this meeting in, in Nevada area six, uh, which basically the Humboldt's Humboldt County, um, Western Humboldt County. I can't quote any of the wildlife officials by name, but I've as I've talked to them down there, they said that is one reason that that herd productivity is down is because of a lot of those lower elevation fires that occurred in there. I don't know, last 20, 30 years were just replaced by cheatgrass. And it, it it's at an elevation and precipitation patterns where 
they just haven't been able to break the cycle. And that that's led to a to a to a definite decline in the productivity of that herd. Geez, Nevada six, you know, 15 years ago was growing giant bucks. And uh <laughs> It's it, it's not doing that well right now, and and I and I've heard people point to the cheatgrass as as one of the biggest problems. And when you drive south of Duck Valley, um, boy, it's just miles and miles of cheatgrass clear up onto the forest. Yeah, absolutely. And you see, um, you know, cheatgrass grass increases the frequency of wildland fires because it's very volatile. Mm-hmm. And and that's the other thing is, you know, you go in and you treat it, you treat a burn and it comes back into cheat. And before the plants really get a chance to take off and do well, it burns again. The mm-hmm. natives, the native plants. Yeah, the, the natives and desirable plants. Absolutely. And uh, but but Nevada is making some headway with that um, and and trying to trying to change that dynamic, obviously um you know giant part of of uh of nevada has burned over the last 50 years uh i pulled up the data for idaho 32 percent of idaho has burned in the last 20 years oh that that that's an interesting stat 32 percent in in how many years in the last 20. 20 years 32 one-third of idaho has burned in the last 20 years yeah, and, it, and and it's all mule deer habitat some has come back and some of it is struggling immensely. Um, yeah, Do you have the numbers of the previous 20 years or historically? Like, is that like 32% sounds high, but you know, there's always been fires. Heck, I grew up with Smokey the Bear, man. He was freaking out every time somebody smoked a cigarette or lit a firecracker back in the 70s. I mean, it was burning then. Is it burning more now? Um, I don't have the numbers specifically, but I can tell you that there has definitely been an increase in fire frequency in a lot of places. And, you know, a good example is the Murphy Complex fire, which burned sort of the north side of the Jarbidge Mountains mm-hmm. uh, right along the Nevada border about 15, 16 years ago. And it burned 700,000 acres in three days. Wow. And it took that country from basically being some of the best mule deer country there is to being elk habitat it looks lower elevation uh all the all the different brush species Mm -hmm. all of that stuff that was down there and 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 now it's it's grass and cheat grass am i correct yeah Yeah, well and and we put millions of dollars uh along with other uh, state agencies and federal agencies into reseeding it and trying to do our best and yet well the, the 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 punchline is the fact that you know about 10 years ago it burned again Mm-hmm. Not not the whole thing, but but a lot of it, and that that frequency is what sort of um, makes it tough for uh, desirable food species for mule deer. Gotcha, gotcha. But Nevada's saying in certain areas they they've had some success with getting the natives to outcompete the weeds. Yeah, <clears throat> and uh, and I, and I think that you know the that. That science and technology is definitely spreading. I know that there was a company um, talking about um, their newest chemical that, you know, some states have had great luck uh, suppressing cheatgrass growth for two and three years uh, directly after a fire, which then they were at the deer and elk workshop in, in Flagstaff in May. So that was 
So it, yeah, we're 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 trying hard, and there have been cheatgrass challenges, and there have been, you know, people have been developing uh, mold spores that supposedly could kill cheatgrass, and there's, I mean, a lot of people want want cheatgrass off the landscape, and it was very interesting that somebody <clears throat> uh, brought up the history of cheatgrass, and a guy named Chad Boyd brought up the history of cheatgrass, and. And when they first described it in the 1800s and how they, you know, people talked about it even in the, at the turn of the 20th century, you know, the early 1900s where it was n nothing could survive in it sort of stuff, uh, statements. And <clears throat> so it's was been it an invasive transplant from somewhere else or was it, is it? Is yeah, it's, 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 it's from across the Pacific Ocean. And dang Europeans, they brought us more garbage than. And we're still dealing with it. Gosh, dang it. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, what is the name of the chemical that uh, they're talking about for cheatgrass? I've read some discussions, lengthy discussions on Rockslide about it, but I can't remember it. Do you? I don't I don't know the the actual chemical name, but the but the, the sort of the, the the retail name is something called Rejuvra. Yep, that's the one. Yep. Yep, and uh, and people are having good luck with it, and and uh, and it's actually not that expensive to apply uh, after a fire, and yeah, um, many states are seeing some real benefits, including Nevada. Excellent. Um, is it applied airily, airily, or is it a ground-based application? How do they do it? Uh, you can do it however you want, but a helicopter is probably the most efficient and effective way to do it. You can do it with a fixed wing also, but I think most states are actually applying it with helicopters. Well, hey, you know, I'm going to ask. I always do when anybody brings up aircraft. If there's an extra seat on that uh, helicopter and they're flying over Mule Deer Country, just let me know. I'll sign up. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. It, uh, always willing to help. You yeah, know me. I I appreciate that. It's uh, it, it is a, it is a wonderful thing to get up and do those surveys and to see all the all the deer that make it through the winter. Um, yeah. Yeah. And just, just, you just get to see the country and all that stuff. That's why I love flying. Um, so let's see, um, uh, I kind of interrupted you there on the, on the noxious weed, uh, thing, but we were yeah. talking about habitat, habitat manipulation. Uh, where were we going with all that? <clears throat> so, uh, the next speaker was actually a meteorologist for the Bureau of Land Management. And I didn't know that Nevada is actually the driest state in the union. Oh Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I I would have always guessed that it was from my trips to New Mexico and Arizona. I would have guessed it was one of those two, but it's actually the driest state. And uh, yeah, it's and it, it it and they talked about sort of the long term prognosis about it getting hotter uh, over time and how that you know obviously is going to have effects on plant communities and and things and so that that was a really interesting talk um the well, next well hey let, let's let's definitely jump into that because you know i i mean i'm no meteorologist and i'm i'm no climate doomsdayer but man i know the last three years have been really hot we've set multiple uh high temperature records uh we i think we've set at least two this summer in in idaho falls which you know maybe that's normal but 
you know, I remember being a little kid sitting in the back seat of my mom's 66 Chevy and her leaning over the seat saying, kids, it's 100 degrees. Um, uh, you know, so those those temperatures were happening back then, but it just seems more frequent now. And it, and it seems like, you know, you get you get more of it. Um, although the hottest summer I remember in the last 20 years was 2003. You know, we had about a three day streak where we broke 100. Um, but but what's he saying? Like, what what are they, what are they seeing historically? And and, you know, what's dive into that that sounds really interesting well, it, was, it was it was it was it was pretty interesting data and obviously you know some of the data you know if you go back before before people were were recording it you know it's based on they base temperature ranges and high temperatures on like tree ring growth mm-hmm, and things right. like that so they don't I mean back you know before the the 1800s Prior to that, it's it's a little bit fuzzier math, but you know we've seen some pretty high temperatures in the last two hundred years. Um, obviously, um, you know, thirty years ago, uh, when I was going to school, people were talking about the fact that we were about to enter into a little ice age. Oh yeah, I remember and, that too. So uh, obviously, like you said, there's a bunch of debate on this. Um, you can't deny that you know, when it gets to be 107 or 108 in Boise, it's hot. Um, and, and that's, that's not good for, for deer. Um, but yeah, I, I think that, uh, I think that the current trend is, uh, getting a little hotter. It's also, you know, they've actually saw some more moisture, you know, in the last, you know, 20 years, moisture, they've had more moisture events than they did the previous you know, 40 or 50 years. So which listening to the climate guys, that that should be happening because a hotter atmosphere can support more relative humidity, more um oh gosh, I'm not a I I'll Bob butcher all this if I get too far into it, but you know, more evaporation that has to come down, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Um, they, you know, that they should go hand in hand. And uh man, you talk to the old farmers around here. One of the old boys up at Tex Creek, Mr. Sweeter, you know, he he said, man, that drought, the drought that we've we've kind of experienced, you know, he's he's well into his 80s, so he goes back a long ways. But the, the drought that is kind of kicking our mule deer's butt here on and off for the last 20, 20, 25, 30 years, he says, that really started in 87. And he said, that's when he really started to see it get really dry and, and, and you know, kind of like it's getting hot now. It, it's always been dry, always had drought. But, you know, it stuck around longer, more multi-year drought events. And, you know, he told me this a few years back, but, you know, he said, you know, this is a long-term drought, not just one or two years, but these, you know, this, this is 20 years. And, and that's why I'm always trying to pay attention to this kind of stuff, because, you know, that's, that's a lot of times that's a long-term driver of these populations. The Rockcast is powered by Onyx Hunt, the number one hunting GPS app in the industry. Join the millions of hunters who trust Onyx to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Some of the key features of Onyx are the ability to combine critical land data with on-the-ground exploration to build your perfect map and find success. All your save markups sync automatically to all devices for use in the field or from home. Onyx includes nationwide public and private land boundaries. Hunt with confidence and find new opportunities using color-coded public land maps, private parcel ownership information, and clearly marked boundaries. 
Mark locations crucial to your hunt with custom waypoints. Measure distances of your walk-in, shot across canyon, or distance to the nearest access point with lines. View maps in 3D and choose satellite, topo, or hybrid base maps to have the best, easy-to-read visual for your hunt. Go as far from the grid as you want. No cell service required. Save detailed maps, layers, and markups for offline use. With live tracking and current location features, you'll make it out and back just like you planned. Don't risk getting turned around or lost. So if you're ready to make the jump to Onyx, use the code ROTCAST at checkout and save yourself 20%. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, uh, and, you know, um, 10 people in a room can all have a different idea about what, what we hear on the media, but, um, it's, it's hard to deny that the, the, the peaks and the valleys are, are more than we've seen, you know, in the past few decades. Yeah. Yeah. The data is the data. I mean, it's, you know, the, you can't like Phoenix just went through its hottest streak of a, above 110 i can't remember how many days they made it i mean that's undeniable they were they, they had the most days in a row in modern history above 110 with 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 no break and i think the longest streak above 90 as well as 90 at night i believe you know and and you know that that stuff that stuff affects deer it fa- affects all of us yeah ab- absolutely yeah no it's you're you're spot on um so the the next talk uh was about the importance importance of browse communities for mule deer and sort of what science is proposing and what states are doing to reduce fire frequency and invasive grasses and specifically about a bunch of experiments how they've gotten bitter brush to go grow back in after fires and uh, and also the use of a plant called forage kosher which um sort of a an amazing plant you can see it along um sections of i-84 in idaho um, they sort of green strip it right along the fence and and they is forage kosher stays green later and it it's basically those are planted fire breaks is what they are um, okay so are these are they kind of like of a, a bunch grass <clears throat> Well, they, they, they kind of look like, um, yeah, they're, they're, they look like a small green bush. They don't, uh, not so much a bunch grass, but yeah, just, uh, just, a just small green bushes that all pack in, um, to each other and, uh, and basically create fire breaks in places. And, uh, it, it, anyways, they, they talked about the benefits of that. And they also talked about, you know, what, what was the what was the formula that they found was most successful get, to get bitter brush reseeded? Um, obviously, they talked about the pluses and minuses of having favorable weather next to unfavorable weather. But really, um, you know, and, and how many plants you needed on the landscape, you know, by planting to then spread the plants um, back onto the landscape, which was which was pretty neat. You know, they talked about, you know, just needing 40 bitter brush per acre and, you know, the, the site will return. Obviously that's, that's pretty low. That's surprising. It it is. And, you know, uh, Idaho fishing game has done bitter brush planning for several decades and sometimes they take, and sometimes they don't. And, uh, but when they do, uh, we, we see benefits and, uh, 
And I think one of the most important things and the thing he stresses stress the most is that it has to be a bitter brush site. So bitter brush had to be there before. You're not going to force something that was not bitter brush into growing bitter brush. The soil microbes and all that stuff are different. The drainage is different and everything. And um, he's, he cautioned against just because bitter brush is a great winter food for mule deer. Uh, you just can't necessarily get it to grow everywhere. Yeah. And, you know, I remember planting it in the 90s in the Portneuf Gap um, with, with Mike Demick in uh, the Pocatello office. And um, you know, every time I drive through there, I there's still not a lot of bitter brush in the Portneuf, Portneuf Gap, but there is some. And I always, you know, I don't remember exactly where we planted it, but I always wonder, like, did that take off? Or, you know, there's been fires in the Portneuf Gap since then. Did it get set back? Um, I've always wondered about that um, because anywhere I go, that's good mule deer hunting, um, it's in, in especially lower elevation. You know, I'm not talking about not talking about alpine, but you know, lower lower elevation stuff. The bitter brush is doing well. That's just hands down. It's if there's good bitter brush, um, you know, it, it, the, the 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 deer population is doing good. I shouldn't say, and it doesn't mean there's a lot of big bucks there, but it, it's it's to me, it's a marker of of healthy habitat. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you you know, the problem is, is that, you know, that bitter brush plant that you see that might be over your head uh, is probably older than you. you yes. Know? It's yes. A long time to get there. And um, so, and, and, you know, we've had instances where we had planning crews out and literally had deer following them, pulling the seedlings up and eating them. Oh. <laughs> and so that, 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 that can happen too. And sort of, uh, well, if you need a sharpshooter to follow the tractor around, let me know. I'm, I'm <laughs> as long as we can get the mate. Um, so did they talk about sagebrush too? Uh, they did. They talked a little bit about sagebrush. Um, you know, obviously sage is a species that's very, very vulnerable to fire. Mm -hmm. um, they talked about how it was important for mule deer. Um not as important as as bitter brush, but definitely, uh, yeah, they did. And and places obviously where bitter brush might not grow, sagebrush can, and that's what you know they you focus on planting in those spots. So, yeah, there's um, sagebrush is always fascinating to me because I remember as a kid it was kind of the enemy. Um, like you know, the sagebrush wasn't productive for deer, and you know, nobody really cared about it there was a lot of destruction of sagebrush habitats where in the 80 well probably more like the 90s i started reading stuff that was like no no this is this is an important habitat marker for mule deer and some of the best places where i where i've seen some of the some of the best bucks have had that that sagebrush that like what you described with the bitter brush that is over your head you know, six, seven foot tall sagebrush. And boy, you just don't hardly get to see it anymore. And I, I think it's because of fires and I don't have the facts on overgrazing, but it seems like a lot of places that are overgrazed, the sagebrush isn't doing real well either. Um, and there's a monument right here in my little town in Iona and it, nothing to do with hunting at all, but it was talking about, I think the Mormon pioneers and that um, like a hundred years ago, they described sagebrush that was taller than a man sitting on a horse. And 
every once in a while i'll see some sagebrush like that you know even around here um but you know to think think back um what it, what it used to be like and you know i don't i don't know how productive that was for mule deer but i know it's better than what we see on the arco desert where it's all been burned to nothing yeah and i think the you know the benefits of sagebrush or deer are that you know when they're on winter range it is something for them to eat to keep their butt their gut sort of mobile mm -hmm. and i think that is the important part um you mm -hmm. know obviously sagebrush has chemicals in it that are plant defenses that um don't necessarily um you know that mule deer have adapted to eat but still they don't get all the bang for the buck out of that plant but but it is important thermal cover hiding cover um and yeah, I mean, one of the stories I read was about the pioneers coming to Idaho and them focusing on the tallest sagebrush and removing it because that's where the soil was the thickest. If they were going to put in a plot of ground to plant something that they focused where the sagebrush was the tallest. Oh, that's that that's interesting. And that that lines right up with uh, there, there's a habitat biologist. He lives right here. I think he works for um i think he's a professor at um byu his, his name is tate and and he was telling me that that because i was asking about some of this giant sagebrush he says that's typically going to occur in 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 your your most fertile soils mm -hmm. yep yeah I, I think that corroborates the old timers uh, ideas quite well yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, so let's see. Uh, habitat, we covered that. The 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 before we leave this, or if we're not leaving it, before we talk more about it, that that forage kosha that you were talking about is that a native plant? Negative. That is not a native plant. It, gotcha. but it it is a plant that uh, that is very resistant to fire, and um, yeah, the koshas are all from. Uh, Eurasia. Gotcha. Gotcha. But they plant them on the, on the side of the freeways for the, for, for fire for, breaks. Correct. Yep. Yeah. I think I know what you're talking about. I, I thought they were kind of a bunch grass, but I remember like whenever I see them, I always think, what is that? And why is it still green and everything else is, is dead basically. Yeah. yeah. So Exactly. And it is incredibly resilient to herbivory. It comes back quick. Um, you know, when animals eat it down, it grows back quite quickly and quite nicely. And so it's, it is a, uh, <clears throat> it is an important, uh, species for, for trying to stop fires and, um, for providing some benefits to wildlife. So how are they using it in mule deer country just as fire break only, or are they like plant planting it right out there with the native plants? I think in some places they're actually putting strips of it out on uh, on on ranges that are in lower elevation areas to just sort of you know just another fire break just a place to slow it down um but yeah it's uh it's it's a big job and you know the the you know to make differences to turn or change mule deer populations you know you have to do work at the landscape scale and and it's it's hard logistically and it's expensive so yeah, the, the logging industry used to take care of it for us. 
in indeed <laughs> yeah and you know that's a whole nother episode and a whole nother argument but it nobody can deny that the fires were less intense and um easier easier contained when there was you know i'm not i'm not advocating for a road system in in uh, backcountry habitat but you know when logging was there you had access to, and, and and fire breaks is what i'm trying to get mm -hmm. at is you were able to create fire breaks where now we don't really have that option although i have seen a lot of logging trucks coming down the bone road lately there must be a must be a, a an approved logging operation around here somewhere but you know it's nothing like it was in the 70s and 80s with the amount that was going on on the forest and there was there were certainly some negative effects of that too you know huge road systems and breaking up country and stuff like that but it it definitely was um created some productive habitat yeah absolutely and uh um it 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 is super beneficial and you know it's uh you know every time that there's a timber sale you know it, it there 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 are benefits to wildlife um in a lot of places so yep just like a burn <clears throat> yep just like a burn um okay so we covered the habitat there and uh the meteorologist the, the, that was the, interesting the next thing on the habitat was actually uh folks from uh, um, Utah DWR came and talked about measuring body condition of mule deer in relationship to their habitat improvement projects. So okay. it really brought together, this is, you know, these are the habitat improvement projects that we did. And, you know, their Utah watershed initiative is quite the, quite the program and they've, uh, they've affected you know millions of acres and uh, it's uh and they show uh you know looking at the mule deer body conditions measuring their fat using an ultrasound machine that um it makes a difference in body condition and that's higher survival that's bigger fawns that's what we want so that was that was pretty neat um and we and the one of the gentlemen from utah um state university actually showed that how mule deer actually use those and focus in on some of those improvement project areas um, more than they would randomly across the landscape and one of the important things that that you know a fellow by the name of danny summers um who is uh, i think the habitat chief in for utah dwr uh, said is that, you know, they're really trying to focus on moving the habitat treatments up the hill. And what that means is that really <clears throat> what they're finding is, you know, we always thought that winter range was the most important thing to mule deer. And I think through the last 30 years of pretty significant research around the West, that summer range has a huge impact on, on deer and and deer populations and deer health and herd herd health and um <clears throat> so they're actually trying to move those projects farther up elevation and uh make some better habitat and actually showed that when they did that obviously mule deer um would uh focus on those areas that they had actually put those habitat treatments in so that was pretty neat um, so utah is able to quantify it and saying look we did this on the habitat and it resulted in this level of usage from the mule deer versus untreated habitat and this level of body fat improvement. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Wow. And they've, uh, 
you know, Utah has uh, gone gangbusters on putting out radio collars along with uh, BYU uh, to understand mule deer, mule deer movements and uh, mule deer habitat use. And, and I think that, uh, you know, that work that they started, I believe, in 2015 or 16, I think they put over, I know they put over 4,000 radio collars out on mule deer. Yeah, Which hats off cool. to Utah. They are yeah. they they are always on that leading edge with those callers. And I was just going to say it before you said said that that um you know leave it up to Utah to come up with a way to quantify body fat to habitat treatments. You know, I mean, kudos to them. That that's the kind of stuff we need to know because you know if it's if it's not worth improving the habitat, let's put the money somewhere else. But if it is, boy, we all know that. Uh, just with this winter that just went by, you know, the best survival mm -hmm. rates were in the areas where the the, the doe levels, um, the body fat levels were the best. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in Montpelier, there's only two fawns that survived and they were both hundred. That one was a hundred pounds and one was 102 when it was captured. There you go. Habitat. And, and uh, yeah, it's habitat. It's the mom's condition. But, you know, the other thing neat about this, uh, the summit was that they took sort of the topics in groups and then had sort of a panel discussion where people from the audience could write their questions on cards and ask the panelists, you know, specific questions. So there is not a lot of one-on-one -on -one, uh, interaction, but a lot of question and answer to the, to the, to the group, which I think helped sort of dive a little deeper into the, into the talks that were given, which I think was a great way to go about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the, like you, you'd break off into a panel and everybody could just kind of round table, discuss the issues. Is that what you mean? Well, yeah. What they did was they put uh, note cards on each table and people could write questions and hand those to the moderator. And he would oh, go through and ask all the questions of the seven people and say, here, Toby, this is your question here. You know, Chuck, here is your question. Um, yeah. So it was, I, I think it worked really good and allowed people to kind of get more in depth than just what was in the PowerPoint presentation, which I think was super helpful. Right. Rather than just have a speaker relaying information out to the audience, actually get it going both direction, audience asking questions and um, uh, that, that kind of a format. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you've mentioned Colorado, Nevada, Idaho, and Utah. How many Western states were represented there? Um, well, um, there was also Texas, um, I'm looking through the list. Um, I think it was Colorado, Utah, Idaho, and Texas were the states that were represented. Hey, good on Texas getting, getting in the mule deer game. Well, and it was, uh, <clears throat> so that the next, um, the next section was actually on predator management and, uh, one of our biologists uh, from Lewiston office actually talked about sort of the interactive roles of nutrition and predation um, kind of at a bigger scale, 30,000 foot. And it was really, really well done talk. And, and then um, the gentleman from Texas got up and talked about management for mule deer. And if you were going to do predator management, this, you know, the, the why, the when and the how. And uh, and I think that was helpful for the for the crowd, because, you know, if 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 you are in a situation where you are. Um, 
not going to make a difference because of other things that are threatening mule deer, you know, biology, then it's, it, it's a waste, it's a wasted effort. But I, I think his, his talk was good. And, and then another fellow from uh, the USDA, um, wildlife services research, um, he really talked about quantifying the effectiveness of predator control. Um, you know, one of the, one of the things that was brought up was the idea of a predator pit and, um, you know, predator pits are sort of a, that, that's a, that's a, that's sort of a nice little catchphrase, um, in, you know, if you're looking at real data, um, some of the things that people think are predator pits aren't necessarily predator pits because well, Toby, let me interrupt you on that because i brought that up earlier yeah you did why don't why don't you tell us what a predator pit is for those of us that don't know or for those of us that might be using it incorrectly and is a predator pit even in the scientific literature or is that just blue collar talk for mule deer management um no it's definitely in the scientific literature um you know there was a author in uh, alaska um, in the 80s that wrote a um, definitive paper about, he didn't call it a predator pit, but he called it low-level low dynamic equilibrium. And basically what it is is <clears throat> if a population is going along and they're doing really well and and then all of a sudden they have a stoke, like a, a, a weather event, like right in the toilet, a big fire, you know, the population goes down, that population is going to suffer and go down also. And the predators that are left, you know, obviously predator numbers fluctuate with prey. Um, there, it isn't like if the mule deer population goes in half and there's nothing else to eat out there for, for a predator, um, they're not going to be able to sustain their, their population levels before the crash that's just it's it's just economics um but what what happens is is populations have those really quick declines because of something other than habitat and then they're at this low level and the predators that are left are sort of keeping them there so every time the population takes a little bump uh you know the predators knock them back and it's sort of a, a low level balance uh, between prey and predator and the what the author from Alaska showed is that sometimes if the habitat is in great shape, if everything else, if winters are mild, that you can actually, through removal of predators, release that population and get them to come up to a level that's higher. And, um, between 2001 and 2005, I actually did that very thing in Alaska on moose calves. And, you know, we had a population that it was down to 1.2 moose per square mile. It was, uh, and we had about 17 calves per hundred cows alive in November. Bad. You know, we should have pregnancy rates were 95, 98%. So we should have had a lot more calves on the ground. And what we did was call our calves, figure out what was actually killing them, and then put in a treatment. And part of that treatment was obviously a wolf control, mm -hmm. a public wolf control. And then the other one was moving bears because bears actually were the biggest 
factor affecting young young moose. And uh, we moved 124 bears out of a 500 square mile area in two years. And in two years, the calf cow ratio was 56 calves per hundred. So it it more than tripled. About where it should be then. So, and when you, you said moved bears or removed bears, I didn't hear that. Moved, physically moved them. So you just um, caught them and moved them? Yep. Every, uh, every, every morning, uh, the crew would go out and catch. So we had collared cows on the air every, every day we would fly all the collared cows to see if one had dropped or how many had dropped calves. Mm -hmm. We would go in with a helicopter and collar those neonates, those brand new one to three day old mm -hmm. calves. And then a big part of the rest of the day was, uh, well, we actually had a ground-based uh, trapping effort and then uh, primarily me in a helicopter uh, darting black bears. <clears throat> and uh, we, we had some rules of engagement about, you know, what bears we would take and what bears we wouldn't. The, you know, sows with cubs was kind of a tough deal because you can't catch cubs. Yeah, right. But, uh, but yeah, we moved 124 bears, I think 12 grizzlies and, and 112 black bears and, uh, moved them from 178 miles up to 350 miles away with airplanes and uh yeah it was uh, it was a great little experiment and uh you know we and and that moose population is still doing well um you know 18, 18 years later wow so so basically there there was a predator a predator pit there or whatever you call that yep. low level and it was it was enough predators and a low enough ungulate population that it was it was holding them down and all you had to do is remove enough predators for a certain amount of time to let those moose get back on their their feet no pun intended and and that population came up and now you no longer have to treat it and they're able to sustain it absolutely <clears throat> and and obviously you know we you know, let people harvest more black bears, but most people, I mean, how many black bears do you want to eat a year sort of thing? Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was, uh, it was a well supported by the community and, uh, it was an awesome project. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so the, the predator pit is real and, and, um, and, and that's the dynamics of it. And, um, um, I, I diverted you to, to clarify what that was, because I do hear about it. And, and like I said, sometimes I just, I just didn't know if it was myth or legend or or what, but it sounds like it's very well versed in the research. And man, we got the man right here that's actually applied it. Um, so, yeah, and, and, you know, in comparison, um, if we look at the late 80s, we probably had more deer on the landscape than the habitat could actually sustain. I so, so. When, we, when we did get those bad winters, the deer plummeted and the habitat wasn't good enough for them to turn around and come back until we got some good successive years of mild winters and wet summers to mm -hmm. really kind of move the move the needle on habitat. Yes. And, and, um, and that's what we saw in 2015 was everything for four years in a row was perfect. And we saw more people hunting and more people harvesting mule deer than we had in the previous 20 years. Yep. The last peak around yeah. here, and, yes. and, and in, at least in the Intermountain West where I hunt, was in 2016. 
and it was yeah. it was pretty good and we we're starting to get a glimmer of hope in 2021 i was starting to see it again uh, not not to the level it was in 16 but you know definitely saying hey man there's there's deer backward everywhere deer should be plus some places <laughs> that got changed again this year um but but on the predator discussion there so so you, you in in the nevada summit the the mule deer enhancement summit that we're talking about here so um I, I diverted you into the predator pit there, but you had brought it up. What were they talking about with, with predation in the summit? Well, I think that- We're talking uh, about Texas. Well, we talked about Texas and Idaho and one person who actually used to be a professor in Nebraska um, sort of gave several examples uh, from around the country. In fact, he even quoted Mark Hurley's work, uh, mm -hmm. you know, as a predator study on mule deer, but. Yeah, I mean that basically sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, you know, doing it at a scale, an appropriate scale is important. Obviously, you talked about it earlier that, you know, keeping your foot on the gas um, can be important, but really understanding the dynamics of where, where deer are with habitat, where they are with other things, uh, disease, um, obviously, uh, road mortality and all those other things to sort of really put into context when and where could we actually get a change in mule deer abundance mm -hmm. and you know the example from idaho was that well it, we we didn't find that we did not find that we were able to to create that that's correct gotcha gotcha yeah. the rock cast is also powered by magview gear Step up your digiscoping game with the most streamlined digiscoping adapter in the industry. MagView pioneered a new era of digiscoping with its universal minimalistic spotting scope and binocular adapters. The system is designed to eliminate the frustrations and inconveniences found in traditional digiscoping systems. MagView's multifunctional system consists of three interchangeable designs, the S1 spotting scope adapter, the B1 binocular adapter, and the MagView phone plate. All MagView systems create an incredibly strong, stable digiscoping platform and only require a super thin stainless steel plate adhered to the phone to secure it to the optic. No more bulky phone cases, no more optic specific adapters. MagView is the digiscoping choice for minimalist hunters looking for one adapter to fit most in-class optics. Many Rockslide members and staff have chosen the MagView system. You can see our in-depth review at rockslide.com and the Rockslide YouTube channel. To discover more about MagView gear, visit magviewgear.com for full specification, installation videos, and tips and tricks. Start capturing your own MagView moments today. Okay, so on the uh, the the what did you take away from the summit? Is there is there hope? I mean, where are we headed? You know, what was was there a good takeaway from this? Um, you know, I'm always I'm always trying to be optimistic. So, is there a silver lining out there that we can share? Yeah, with and, and and the, uh, the 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 fourth panel discussion, the fourth group of speakers was actually about wild horse management. Oh, tell us more. And that was uh, that was uh very um very eye-opening for me i had never um i'd never been so immersed in wild horse uh information you know that all started in 1971 with the wild horse and burrow act 
which basically forbade the removal of uh, of horses from the range. Um, some really fascinating stuff on how hard horses can be on the range, how they can be uh, ultimate competitors against water sources. Mm-hmm. They had video of horses crowding around a water source and sheep not being able to get to it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, the you know the productivity you know you're talking about an animal that was that had been domesticated for five thousand years before the Spaniards brought them over. Um, they have they they they've really they really truncated their their survival mechanisms to make making more horses, and they had a great picture of a very very thin mare. Uh, ribs sticking out, <clears throat> hips uh, obviously uh, visible, and a foal was nursing. Mm-hmm. And 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 what this person, what the professor explained was, is that, and this was somebody from the USGS, was that they are so hardwired to reproduce that they will do it at the ultimate cost to themselves. Whereas all the other wild horse species from Africa, from Asia you know, would never go that far because if they were in bad body condition, they would forego having a foal. They would, they would reabsorb it, abort it and, and try to save themselves. Whereas these domestics do not, you know, just some crazy statistics like, you know, the federal government spent in FY in fiscal year, 2023, they spent $148 million on wild horses. That That's a chunk of change. And, uh, and their estimate for the population in Nevada is 48,000 wild horses. Well, I love horses and I'm a horseman myself. There's five right out behind my house right now that I own, but I've never seen, is there another non-native species that we dump so much money into to protecting that is so destructive on the landscape? I can't think of one. No, no, but you, you, you know, you're a horse owner. Um, that horses hold a very special place with a lot of people that don't see it the way we do, um, to, to say it as nicely as possible. And, uh, you know, they, they, they you know, I, I think, you know, ultimately the BLM is doing as good a job as they can. Uh, there are legal limits under which they can do it, um, mm. but they do roundups every year. Um, they're injecting um, horses with uh, contraceptives to reduce reproduction, mm-hmm. but yeah, it, it it is a it is a huge conundrum, and obviously, the feral horse issue is not going away because people are still turning out horses. Really? So, so that there are people that are just turning them out on public land. I did not know that. Yeah. When hay prices skyrocketed a few years ago, mm-hmm. you know, the feral horse population in one part of Idaho went, went up dramatically. I did not know that. And uh, yeah. So, so unfortunately, you know, it's, I won't call it illegal dumping, but uh, yeah, it's, you know, introducing a very dangerous a very destructive animal to the land, not dangerous, but destructive to the landscape. And, and, uh, you know, they are, you know, the, the old term about, um, horses is they are hay burners. 
And that's because they, it takes a lot of food to feed them. And they were, their, their digestive system is actually one of the most inefficient digestive systems of any animal. And uh, so it takes a lot of food and it takes a lot of water for them to process the food. Mm-hmm. So they can be incredibly destructive fairly quickly. Yes, and I, I've seen it, seen it on my own properties here. They are eating machines. And, uh, and, and Nevada, it's interesting that that's where the summit was because the way I understand it, that's kind of the epicenter of the wild horse problem is, is Nevada. I think it extends into Utah. You know, we have a wild horse population over here at Chalice. I don't hear too much about it, but, um, did, did Nevada, did Nevada state that it's a problem they want to fix or are they just saying our hands are tied, nothing we can do? Like what, what came out of that discussion? Well, I mean, I think everybody has, uh, you know, I, I think, I think we're, we're all hopeful and uh, obviously there is new legislation happening all the time that is, um, if, that if it were passed would affect horses one way or the other. I mean, the, I looked up a statistic on Oregon and they have about 17,000 wild horses. Mm-hmm. So I uh, couldn't find how many were in Idaho, but you know, that's, that's a substantial amount. And if, you know, when you're talking about very sparse habitat as it is, and you put a feral animal on there that not only dominates the forage, but also dominates the water sources, um, makes it, makes it tough for our native wildlife to to make a living that's what i hear from the guys in nevada especially the mule deer hunters down there that some of the places where water is limited that um that you just can't compete with the horses the mule deer just cannot do it and you know, they can't get into the water the horses you know defend it and um and just tromp it into almost where it's unusable absolutely yeah and then they had examples of you know some of that um, pictures of those and yeah, it was it was very eye opening to me and felt really sorry for, you know, the the, the habitat because it uh, in a lot of places where they exist, <clears throat> um, it's hammered. Yeah, well, this is the problem when people get to vote with their feelings, you know, because because like I said, I love horses, I love them, but they are a non native species, and uh, you know, public land is is not where they're intended to be, and we don't let other feral animals take over massive amounts of landscape um uh, just because of you know historical or anything i i don't know i don't have the answer either but uh you know hopefully this uh this contraceptive uh idea works and uh because i i know especially in drier states uh, like nevada and, and utah and it sounds like probably eastern oregon um that that they do a lot of damage and, and the way i understand it that they they like lower horses like lower elevation you know the kind of the sensitive habitat it seems to be like where they end up. Like, I, I don't see them running around in the mountains. No, I don't either. And, uh, you know, I, I think the other thing that horses do is sort of provide a readily accessible food source for other predators like mountain lions. Ah, didn't think so, of that. And we know that some of the work that has gone on from the University of Nevada, Reno, that shows that wild horses are a key food component for mountain lions um, in in areas where um, horses and mountain lions overlap. 
So are you saying that it, it, it allows you to sustain a bigger lion population, which may then have an effect on ungulates? Oh, I have no doubt. <clears throat> and, you know, it's, it's amazing. You know, they, they showed some of the survey data and, you know, when we have at the end of the, at the end of the spring, when we have 50 mule deer fawns per hundred does, we're, 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 we're at the average and doing good. There, they talked about numbers of 70 and 80 foals per hundred mares. Wow. And, and uh, they're incredibly productive and uh, yeah, nothing stopping them. So yeah, I'd yeah. love to see 70 uh, fawns per hundred does as an average. Oh boy. You and me both. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that fixes a lot of things when you're able to do that. Well, cool. Um, anything else on the, uh, on the summit? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I guess to summarize, I think uh, it was a really good way to sort of get a lot of people some pretty important information to sort of put in their thesis as they move forward in trying to do better things for mule deer. I think the great thing is, is that just like Idaho's mule deer initiative, you know, Nevada is all in on on doing it and doing everything they can to make it better, which I think is amazing. And um, and the next day, the on Saturday, they actually took a field trip out and showed the test plots um, where they've been actually um, applying that that trade name Rejuvra. It's oh, uh -huh. uh, I I can't pronounce the name, but <laughs> it's okay. We're just a bunch of rednecks. We can't either. We're just yeah. we're, we can barely say Rejuvra. Yeah, yeah, let alone glycosamine phosphate, Ltron two. There you go. But <laughs> anyways, they sort of showed and showed off. You know that this is what we can do. Uh, you know, if we have the tools and we have the conditions, and uh, yeah, it, it was. What'd you see? What 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 could you visually <clears throat> see? Well, you know, they've had repeated fires on a wildlife management area, and where they went in and treated it, um, you know, there was definitely remarkably less cheatgrass and more natives coming in, which is exactly what you want. So knocking down the cheatgrass, giving the, giving the native plants a, a chance to, to dominate the landscape and take off versus just frequent fires that you know, increase the fire frequency, plus just the day-to-day the -day competition for water and everything. The, the whole idea is just knocking that cheatgrass back and, and give those native plants a leg up. Yeah, and a lot of the stuff that they were talking about there and the stuff that had burned was um, pretty important winter range for their herds. And, you know, they've done the the migration analysis of the collar data and showed that, yeah, de deer were here before and they're, they, they, not as many can be there now because it's not quite back to where it needs to be. But they're they're definitely working hard at it, which it was... I think that's the silver lining is that we are learning things. We are trying to make a difference. And, uh, you know, uh, sometimes it takes uh, a little bit more luck than most people would like us to, you know, say, but, you know, with a little luck, um, yeah, we can make a long-term difference. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, I remember in, uh, kind of, 04, 05, we got into some just 
good wet months and you know not too hard of winters you know you can't have easy winters because that leads to drought too but everything was just right man it just takes a year or two or three of that and everything changes and if you're applying some of these treatments that you're talking about whether it's predation or habitat or some combination of all of them uh and, and then you know what you just said luck get a little bit of luck boy things can turn around in a hurry Absolutely. You know, mule deer have the ability to reproduce at about 28 or increase at about 28% if everything's perfect. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and and that means you can double the population in a little more than three years, which is phenomenal. And <clears throat> and yet, you know, the interesting contrast is that whitetail can, their, their, their ability to reproduce is almost double. Actually, it's more than double of really? what mule deer. Yeah, really. So yeah. They, they instead of twenty eight percent, they're they're like sixty. Yep, they, they measured in one study with no predation. Um, yeah, six actually sixty seven percent because when they're on good habitat, the fawns are actually. I think sixty percent of the fawns are actually having young, so they're born in June, bred in October. Wow. Um, and and then, uh, you know, all the adults are having twins or triplets, uh, whereas we don't see triplets very often in mule deer. We also see that mule deer <clears throat> always have a single for their first fawn and then, you know, double up based on habitat variables uh, can can produce twins for a certain amount of time. And then as they get older, that you know if the habitat is just normal uh their production actually slows down a little bit and they might actually pulse one single fawn and mm -hmm. then the next year mm -hmm. twins and that's all related to body condition i mean it really is what deer have on their rumps for fat it delegates and and basically controls so much in their lives you know and and we've talked about it before Heavy fawns make more. Uh, fa heavy fawns make bigger adults, which make more fawns, which make bigger antlers. It's just, it's, it's just the way it is. Yep. When we, whenever we document hundred pound, ninety to hundred pound fawns around here, our survival rate is high. It has to take a exceptionally hard winter to kill a fawn like that. But when we start yeah, seeing and, these and, fawns and, at 60, 70 pounds, it does not take much to tip them over. And and where you live and 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 do a lot of your traipsing around, you know, you actually get um, some monsoonal rains, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, which is incredible. You know, you look at uh, places in western Idaho where you know they're lucky to get eight inches, nine inches in a year. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's uh, pretty pretty incredible um, the differences, and and I think that's one of the reasons that some states that get heavy monsoons monsoonal rains in June and July um, do so, their mule deer do so well. Yeah, yeah. And we've been lucky this year. We've had an inch of rain already in August this year. And some of that Western Idaho stuff just got a, a good shot in the arm from this, hur uh, uh, hur uh, not hurricane, tropical storm Hillary that, um, you know, made it up into that part of the state. In fact, I think it was dead center at one point uh, on the triple point of Idaho, Oregon, and Nevada. And uh, you just don't see that. And that's that's just a shot in the arm for those guys. And, uh, you know, when you hear about a tropical depression in the Owyhee Desert, I mean, that's like, 
that's odd. You know, you don't even hear about that stuff. And so I was glad to see that come through. And this summer here, I mean, and it's usually this way after these hard winters uh, has, has been good. It's been good on our deer this summer. We didn't go with any really maybe a couple of weeks without any rain and uh, that was in the valley and even during that time there was still some pop-up thunderstorms in the mountains and uh you know i think uh yeah, as long as you don't have too hard of a winter th these deer should be in good shape coming off of this summer I, I know they had some rebuilding to do after the hard winter but but toby i have laid eyes on two sets of uh twin fawns with does this summer and you know i know they're always around but i mean it was, i just thought if there was a year not to see twin fawns it would be this year and i actually got to see that absolutely yeah no that's that's a good indication that you know not not everybody um you know was in such bad condition and you know that's that sort of winter was really focused on the very southeast corner and as you went north it was less, but it was still significant. And I, I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be a tough year, um, in Eastern Idaho. Um, there's not going to be a lot of two points on the ground, uh, on the hillside. And, you know, I think that, uh, but you're right. I think we are in a situation to rebuild. And I, I hope that, uh, you know, we can follow up with a couple of, reasonable normal winters and uh some uh, you know a little bit of moisture during the summer and 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 we'll be in uh we'll be in tall cotton in no time let's just put it on the calendar and plan on it <laughs> there you go <laughs> um and and speaking on that was there I, I know that none of the counts have been done after the hard winter obviously that's not going to occur until december and january but was there any talk of winter mortality winter survivability during this summit um no i mean obviously we have radio collared um does that are still doing quite well um the ones that survived and um but i, I think that uh, you know uh, it will be interesting to see what fawn weights are i would assume that they're actually going to be a little bit lighter than we'd like this fall just because of the reduced body condition mm -hmm. and uh you know hopefully that there's more twins than 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 I estimate, but you know, it's there's that lag between a bad winter and when mule deer can really kick it in gear. Mm -hmm. There's that one year of mm -hmm. lag where their body condition is still not back to where it was mm -hmm. and their um and therefore their fawn production is lower and um and therefore you know and 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 it actually could mean a uh, lower survival for those fawns but hopefully uh hopefully that's not the uh hopefully that's not the case but we'll know more um we'll start doing our aerial surveys around the 5th of december and probably have a real good idea by the by just after christmas of what we have for fondo ratios out there and and uh yeah we're um <clears throat> we're, we're 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 cautiously optimistic that it's we're going to turn around here quickly um and we we'll have some check station data what late october early november won't we yes yep we'll have check station data we'll have uh we'll have collar survival data and then we'll go into uh yeah the early winter with some 
um, fawn collaring and also a fawn survey or fawn doe survey. So, so on our check station data, because the uh, antlerless hunting is almost virtually non-existent this year, um, we we won't be taking we won't have a big sample size of doe body fat, right? That's correct. So, but will we be taking it from bucks? Um, you know, we um, we were taking yearling buck body fat measurements uh, for years, and unfortunately, it really the sample sizes were never great enough from one area or another to really say definitively mm-hmm. where where it's going. Um, what we will do is when we're capturing does this winter in December, we'll actually be measuring with ultrasound their their fat um rum fat basically is what we do gotcha so we won't really have any data till we get into december then that's that's correct yeah it'll uh well if i shoot a buck in the next couple of weeks here archery season opens next week man i'll I'll peel it back and take a measurement for you on the on the top of that rump and hopefully i'm seeing two and a half inches of of uh of fat on that uh, top of that rump i remember when i worked at the check stations in the 90s and dave and those guys had cut those open and you know peel that hide back and it was amazing how fat some of those deer were it absolutely is and you know it, it's um and it just sort of speaks back to you know the incredible habitat that that we are blessed with here compared to other places mm-hmm. um yep. it could be a lot worse yeah yeah you bet you bet so well all right toby uh any, anything else we need to touch on um no i think that's uh i think we covered it pretty good rob and uh no i don't have anything other than i appreciate your um interest in in covering this and uh I think it was a really good thing for mule deer hunters in Nevada and and trying to spread that word out and the information I think is uh, kudos to you. And uh, no, I look, look forward to the future and uh, hopefully we can be on a, on a good, good path. Well, thank you very much. And, um, and it's not just me, it's really what our listeners are asking for. Um, you know, you've, we've probably had a close to 10, 12 different wildlife officials on here and and people love it. They love to hear from you guys. And, you know, rather than just an email here and there, or, you know, coffee shop talk, they get to hear it right from the source and then people can form their own opinions. And, uh, you know, learned a long time ago, we don't all have to agree, but we got to keep these discussions coming and, and keep learning. And if, if we're going to have a mule deer on the landscape and my hope is a thriving mule deer herd here in the next couple of years, we, we got to have these summits like the Nevada mule deer enhancement summit that toby boudreau of the idaho idaho state deer and elk coordinator just attended and uh, let's keep these discussions going i'll have uh, this on social media on the rock slide uh, instagram page we also have a rock cast uh, forum inside of rock slide where we always post these episodes so anybody that's out there including you toby are welcome to join in and um, uh, ask questions answer questions all those things because uh, if we're going to have strong mule deer herds in in america and uh, in the future we we got all band together and if you want to help mule deer beyond just buying a license join the mule deer foundation you probably spent more on rock stars this week than it cost to join the mule deer foundation i encourage everybody to do that and uh and again toby thank you very much uh the invitation's open anytime you want to swing in whether for an entire episode or if you just have some short updates we're happy to share those too i appreciate that robbie and 
uh, yeah, I really appreciate what you do and and spreading, you know, information. And I think it's awesome. All right, buddy. Let's keep doing it. All right. Okay. Thank you. 